From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, PRK and Kids for Anisometropic Amblyopia. He was non-compliant prior to the PRK, never wore glasses, never would patch, had his PRK, continued to be non-compliant to this day, and his visual acuity is best corrected 2030, uncorrected 2040. And he's never been compliant with any amblyopia therapy aside from the PRK. So with 14 diopters of anisometropia, we all know that his visual acuity would probably be less than 2200 in this eye at this point, and he's now six years old. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Pacey reports no real or apparent conflicts of interest. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. Here's the setting. A patient presents with a visually debilitating pathology for which therapy exists. However, the patient is non-compliant and is destined for permanent visual loss. What if that patient is a child? Anisometropic amblyopes are in exactly this position. If they are non-compliant, few options exist. So what if, rather than forcing the child to use the amotropic eye as conventional therapy dictates, we were to correct the amotropia. Evelyn Pacey of the Baylor College of Medicine has published results of a study of correcting the amotropia of non-compliant anisometropic amblyopic children using PRK. I asked Dr. Pacey to describe conventional therapy for anisometropic amblyopia. Um, you treat the uh, patient first by giving them refractive correction, so you know either contact lenses or glasses. And um, then if they have amblyopia, like, now that's, you know, presuming that they don't have amblyopia, they may just get away with that, you know. But if they do still have amblyopia after you give them the refractive correction, then you need to either patch their better eye or use atropine penalization in their better eye. What's wrong with conventional therapy? What are the pitfalls in conventional therapy? Well, when you have severe anisometropia, it when you correct it, you create anisoconia. So, so that, like, if you have more than about three to four diopters of, anis- of anisometropia, they often won't wear their glasses because of vague complaints that they just don't like them. Like, and it's usually because of anisoconia. Uh, they don't usually complain of diplopia, but a few, ha- few do. Um, and so that's a major problem. The other problem is um, cosmesis. So if they're, you know, if they're really anisometropic, it looks terrible. So one eye is, you know, 
looks small if it's on myopic eye or, or you know, magnified, so it's asymmetric cosmetically. So that's parents typically complain about that. Um, and then compliance. So compliance with wearing their glasses or do compliance with the patching is a big problem. Atropine penalization only works if the other eye is not myopic. Um, so that has its limitations. Um, and then if you are trying to treat them with contact lenses, the problems of contact lenses are that they often are lost, um, they're expensive, they're hard to insert for parents, um, and then microbial keratitis is um, always a risk of any contact lens person, but children are not very hygienic, so it's a little bit higher risk for, for getting that complication as well. At what degree of anisometropia does compliance begin to become a problem? Uh, how much anisoconia can these kids tolerate? Usually, now, the younger the children are, usually will tolerate more, you know. So, um, but I think that their fusion and stereopsis later on will suffer. But I would say that it starts to be problematic typically around four diopters of difference. Is the threshold for developing amblyopia lower for anisometropic hyperopic patients than for myopic patients? Um, you know, they tend to not be as great of an anisometropia, you know, um, just because the limits of myopia with the premature infants, it gets to be, you know, that's the most common patient we see nowadays with the huge amounts of anisometropia are former preemies with bad ROP, you know. Um, so they have those huge differences, whereas hyperopic anisometropia usually is not more than six or seven diopters. You know, six diopters is kind of, you know, getting up there on the limits of how different you get. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess there's every once in a while a very rare patient, but, you know, I just don't think there aren't that many people that are more than six or seven diopters of, of hyperopia at all, unless they're asynchronous, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so I think that um, do they tolerate it less well? They get amblyopic with less amounts of anisometropia, but I don't know if they tolerate it less well when you correct them. You know what I mean? I'm not sure if I can say that. How do most clinicians manage noncompliant anisometropic amblyopes? Well, it's really hard because there isn't much you can do but keep trying to get the parents and them to understand and try to do it, you know. So if you're using patching therapy um, and they're noncompliant, you can switch to atropine penalization uh, as long as the fellow eye is not more than about a half a diopter of myopia. So that's one way, um, and that's a good way. However, if their amblyopia is severe, it may not work. Um, you know, the ATS studies looked at atropine penalization versus patching therapy up to a limit of 2,200. And so these severe, the amblyopic eyes may not, you know, they may not respond to atropine penalization. We just, I mean, there's not been any good studies looking at the limits of, of atropine. But my feeling is when they have very poor vision, they need patching to get them up to a point where they at least can see well enough to, to get a, get around and then hopefully switch fixation to their to their amblyopic eye you know the feeling in of many people is that at you know you need to get the at you know, the atropinized eye to see worse than your amblyopic eye to get much in benefit you know from from the penalization therapy so you know if you've got 2200 vision in your amblyopic eye the the atropinized better eye may still see better what are the special concerns with PRK in children? 
Well, when we, you know, when people started investigating, um, you know, refractive surgery in children, we didn't know how the cornea would react in children. And we know that that uh, the pediatric eye is not just a small adult eye, and it behaves and reacts differently to different surgical procedures like, you know, IOLs and cataract surgeries, very different in children than in adults. Corneal transplants behave differently in children than in adults. So we weren't sure whether or not uh, the cornea would react differently to PRK or LASIK than it, than it does in adults. We weren't sure whether or not the nomograms that were generated from adults would be applicable to children. We weren't sure whether or not the cornea uh, would heal with a lot more haze than the adult because it has more vigorous healing. So those are the main concerns. We aren't sure even at this point now whether there's going to be any long-term complications from having done PRK or LASIK. And you know, the main thing that I worry about is keratectasia as they get older. And um, I worry more about that with LASIK than in PRK because of the, the deep stromal ablation that you're doing with LASIK and you avoid that with with surface ablation. Can I have you describe the design of the study? Well, this study was really a pilot study um, and we enrolled um, patients that had failed traditional therapy with either contact lens or glasses and uh, patching or or penalization therapy. And the patients had to have um, at least six diopters of anisomyopia or four diopters of anisohyperopia to be well, eligible. And so that was the entry criteria. They had to also have no anatomic abnormalities of the eye. They underwent a comprehensive ophthalmologic examination before. They had their PRK, um, nine of the 11, we had 11 patients, and what we wanted to do was follow these children long-term before starting to use this procedure on other children so that we could make sure that we weren't doing any harm. So we only did children that had the severe amounts of anisomotropia with amblyopia and that had failed everything else that we had to offer. Okay, and then they, they underwent PRK. Nine of them had to have it under general anesthesia. So we needed to, at way back when, to, to devise an anesthesia protocol that would not interfere with the eczema laser. Uh, and uh, which was achieved, and uh, then they underwent the, the laser procedure. They uh, then were followed uh, of every, there was at one month, three months, six months, nine months, and 12 months, they had a comprehensive examination every visit, and then they were followed up at 24 months and 36 months again um, to see what had happened with them. And, uh, and basically had the most important things that we were looking at were uh, refractive error reduction and stability in the treated eye, the cycloplegic refraction, the visual acuity, best corrected and uncorrected, their stereoacuity, and their corneal status. Can you walk me through PRK in a child? Well, in this group, there were two people that were old enough to cooperate to do it without putting them to sleep. So basically, um, what we did was... Um, we had an induction room, which is adjacent to our operating room. And we have a laser company called Laser Vision Centers Incorporated that brought in a roll-on, roll-off laser to the, the operating room and got it set up the night before. The patients were in, induced in this other room. So that we used halothane induction, and then we put a 
tin-tin drape. They use an LMA and then a tin-tin drape over the nose to basically try to wall off anything that could leak out of an LMA downward. They were shifted over, brought into the operating room where the, the eczema was, put on the table, lined up. Then these patients had to undergo pachymetry measurements and uh, keratometry because they weren't uh, cooperative to do that awake. And then uh, once they got that all done, they had their procedure just like you would if you were uh, an adult. So, you know, we had the, the typical laser scrape. And now the, the myopic patients, uh, they used a laser scrape. And the hyperopic patients, they did a manual scrape. And then the, the uh, refractive procedure, whatever they needed. How did you determine centration with these kids? Well, this group of patients was done with the STAR S2 laser. So it didn't have the centration mechanism. So what we did was the refractive surgeon would center the eye and the beam on the entrance pupil as much as he could do. And then there were two observers that sat down visually and in line with the iris to make sure that there was no tilt to the eye as much as, they, as, much as possible. Uh, and we had pretty good centration in these patients. Uh, there was one patient that was decentered more than a millimeter, but the rest of them were less than, most of them were less than a half a millimeter of decentration. So we did quite well with this group. Since that time, we have now done um, about eight more patients with the S3 uh, VizX, and it has the centration, which is much easier now. But we still have one observer watching the iris plane because you, you can't tell if you're, a little bit tilted with that too. So it's not perfect yet. And in fact, from, from this, you know, the study that in the ongoing study that we're doing with these patients, the laser machines really should devise a way of looking at the eye from the side to do these kids under general anesthesia, because I think that that is necessary. Now, some people have used some sort of fixation ring and, but we never did. We just haven't found that necessary. Was a bandage contact lens uh, applied postoperatively? Yes. Yeah, so postoperatively, they got uh, one drop of uh, Acular, uh, a drop of Ocuflux, uh, Lotamax, and then they got a bandage contact lens. And actually, this group of patients, we used some collagen plugs in their upper and lower puncta to try and increase the tear film. And the thought was that might decrease their postoperative haze. And since that time, we haven't been doing the collagen plugs anymore. What was the post-operative medication regimen for these kids? Uh, for the first you know, three to five days until the epithelium healed, they were using the Ocuflox and uh, Lotamax, and they were four times a day each. They could use, the children could use Acular up to four times a day for the first two days. Then once the corneal epithelium healed, the bandage contact lens was removed, and then they were they changed to FML Forte, and that was used four times a day for depending on how their corneas looked for at least two months, um, and they were followed up, and then they were on a slow taper up to six months out. All these patients had some dose of FML Forte for six months. What was the control group? Now the control group was a group that we derived retrospectively to compare visual acuity outcomes um, to see whether we were doing anything that was helpful, basically, because we didn't, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a randomized group, and we wanted to see what happened. And yes, so the, the group that we con compared it to was a 
retrospective group of patients that had similar amounts of anisometropia that were treated with traditional therapy um, and were non-compliant or compliant. How is compliance defined for the purposes of this study? Uh, we used a scale of compliance that has been used in some of the, the TDIG studies, um, amblyopia treatment studies, <clears throat> and compliance was parental report by, by parental report. And uh, compliance was, was defined as excellent compliance if uh, the parent reported greater than 76% of the recommended time completed. It was good compliance if the parental report was 51 to 75% of the recommended time completed. Fair compliance was parental report of 25 to 50% of the recommended time completed. And poor compliance was if less than 25% of the recommended time was completed. Since these were non-compliant patients to start off with, were you concerned with compliance with the postoperative regimen? No, because the parents could put a drop in. I mean, I knew that they could do that. I think that the patching regimens are, you know, long periods of time, you know, two hours to you know, six hours a day, and um, that's much harder to do than to just put a drop in. So I wasn't too worried about the compliance on the drops. What were your results in the myopic patients? Well, in general, the, the patients showed a, a good dose response. Um, they had um, the maximum treatment dose that we uh, would do in the myopic group was minus was 11.5 diopters. So even though some of our patients had much more myopia than, than 11.5 diopters, we, we said that was our maximum treatment dose. Um, and the reason for that is that there have been reports of much higher amounts of corneal haze with larger treatment um, doses in adult patients. And uh, what we found, though, was that even with that dose maximum, some of our patients that had higher amounts of, of myopia got a bigger response. So it was um, the nomograms may not hold true for those really high myopes. But what we found was that uh, they responded very well. They had... Um, they, they had some regression of their treatment or dose response over the first 12 months. And then after that, they have been in very stable. In the, the myopic group, the mean target um, refractive reduction was 10.1 diopters. And what we achieved at one year was 10.56 diopters. And at three years, it was it had regressed to 9.8 diopters. So they had a bit of regression, but it it really was over the first 12 months, 12 or so months, and then it pretty much stabilized. What were your results for the hyperopic kids? Okay, so the hyperopic group um, also did well. They have seemed to have. Now we only had three patients. Okay, so that has to limit your impression of what we we found because there was so few patients. So our treatment goal, the mean treatment goal with the hyperopic patients was plus 4.75, and we achieved um, at one year a response of 4.08 diopters, but there was some regression of that group, um, and at 36 months, it was only 2.88 diopters of response. So, uh, you know, I think the hyperopic patients tend to uh, regress longer, but again, we have to take that with a grain of salt since there was only three patients here. What about measures other than Snell and visual acuity, uh, like stereopsis? Now, our stereopsis was actually quite interesting. We had nine patients that were, had, were orthotropic out of the 11. Those are the patients that we 
were really interested in with regards to stereo because the other two didn't have ability really because, to have any regaining of stereopsis because of their age. And of that, um, those nine patients, five improved on their stereopsis. Some of them remarkably um, improved. Um, and the ages were quite interesting um, at the time of their treatment. Their ages were 4, 6, 8, 10, and 11 years of age at the time of their procedure. And even at those advanced ages, they still improved on their, their stereopsis. One of them improved from having no measurable stereopsis preoperatively to 60 seconds of arc. So quite a, an amazing amount of improvement in uh, some of these kids. What was haze like in these kids? Their haze was very mild. There was only one patient. It was graded on a scale of 1 to 4 plus, or 0 to plus 4, where 0 was, of course, clear. 1 plus is trace. 2 plus was um, mild, where you can, the iris details were still visible, but, you know, slightly um, blurred. 3 plus was moderately blurred, and 4 plus was you couldn't see the iris detail. Never was there more than 2 plus corneal haze in any patient. And that was only in a patient that was non-compliant and stopped his drop at one month and didn't come back for four months and showed up again. All the other patients had one plus uh, corneal haze or less. And um, at 12 months, um, there was a mean of 0.25 or 0.5 uh, um, on this scale. So very mild haze, and most of them had none. So I think the issue of corneal haze, as long as you're on, you do need to be on long, you know, this long course of, of steroids, um, but that the haze is not a huge issue as long as you stay on the steroid. How did the kids compare to the retrospective controls? They, okay, so what we did was we, we compared um, the, the groups to a non-compliant and compliant control group that had similar levels of anisomotropia. And uh, they had similar ages, their, um, and their intraocular differences were similar. So like for the myopic group, the case group had a, a myopic difference of roughly 12 diopters, and the control was 11 diopters of anisomotropia. The hyperopic group in the cases was a 4.4 diopters of difference versus 5.5 diopters in the hyperopic anisomotropia group for the, the control group. And what we found... Um, with the patients that were compliant was that in the control group, the compliant patients would improve with traditional therapy, but the non-compliant group, uh, not unexpectedly, would not improve. So uniformly, and um, they, they didn't improve. But our control group, or our study group, uh, had improvements in their visual acuity uh, that was statistically significantly different than the non-compliant control group. So that our study group is most you know, consistent with the non-compliant control study group, uh, or control control group, and it showed that you know the TRK group did does have better visual acuity than the non-compliant control group. So you know what it's showing is that the PRK is helping their amblyopia. And you know this this group um, was small, but it shows it gives us some some strong evidence to to going further and doing a prospective study where we would compare patients that you know with traditional therapy versus PRK, and and I you know I envision that um, ideally we would be not 
treating these patients when they have such severe amblyopia and they're so they're old. And we should really be treating these children uh, if they fail traditional therapy at two to four years of age and not wait till they're six and seven years of age. So you know that's that's what needs to come next is a is a large study that randomizes patients to traditional versus you know PRK or LASIK, and really look at that question you know to see whether or not it it is truly uh, making a difference in their visual outcome. Do you think that treating these kids at a younger age would have changed your results? Well, you know, I, my impression is that it it probably would. And I say that because um, of our one anecdotal child that was only two years old at the time of treatment. And he is our two-and-a-half-year-old child who had anisometropia of roughly 14 diopters of myopia in this eye. He was non-compliant prior to the PRK, never wore glasses, never would patch, had his PRK, continued to be non-compliant to this day, and his anisometropia was reduced to you know, basically a nothing, half a diopter. He's done very well from a refractive standpoint, has a half a diopter of myopia in this eye, and his visual acuity is best corrected 2030, uncorrected 2040, and he's never been compliant with any amblyopia therapy aside from the PRK, if you can call that an amblyopia therapy. So with 14 diopters of anisometropia, we all know that his visual acuity would probably be less than 2200 in this eye at this point, and he's now six years old. You know, he's one case, but he's a very strong case in the fact, you know, showing that, you know, if you treated these kids early, or you could really, we could probably be doing much better than what we're getting in our results now. Since the Anisoconia arising from high anisometropia is presumably one of the factors that influenced compliance in these kids. Did you find that compliance improved postoperatively? Interestingly enough, it did not. Um, and that might, we were hoping that we would see that they got better. Some of the patients were able to tolerate one, you know, one hour of patching a day, but so many of these children had such dense amblyopia by the time they got to this study that, and they were older, that we didn't see, I, I'm, say, I'm, I'm presuming possibly that that's why their improvement was not, you know, seen or their, or their improvement in compliance was not seen. I don't, I can't say whether or not if we treated them earlier, would their compliance be better um, I think that their amblyopia, the density of their amblyopia would probably be less and they may in fact be more compliant. But in our group, we found that their compliance with patching or, or any kind of amblyopia therapy did not improve. So from this pilot group, we can't say whether or not it, it would later on. How do your findings compare with those of other studies? Well, they're, they're uh, similar uh, to the results of other studies. There, um, uh, there have been probably 10 or 12 studies now in the literature on children in, in, with PRK or LASIK. Most of them have been in PRK. And they've treated similar levels of anisometropia. Now, some, um, patient, some groups have treated much, with much higher doses of PRK than, than we did, um, but with good response and good results with improvements in vision and minimal complications, minimal haze. Um, so our, 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 you know, the findings are consistent in our group w with the other published uh, in the literature. What do you do in your own practice outside of studies uh, when non-compliant and isometropic amblyopic kids come in? 
Well, if they um, are already, I mean, it, first I'll get patients that, let's say, they come in with anisometropia first and we don't know if they're non-compliant. So I first treat them with refractive correction. Um, if they need some sort of ambulatory therapy, I'll do that as, you know, patching or, or atropine and follow them. And if they continue, you know, if, they're, if they fail and they're non-compliant and they've been non-compliant for four to six months, I um, tell them, because we still have an ongoing study, that this is a, this is a um, you know, a treatment option that they should consider. And uh, then we, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, be able to, to get them enrolled in that study. So I, I give them a, a six-month trial to become compliant. And if they don't, then I offer that, you know, the, the procedure for that. With regards to this study, I'm, you know, we're, we're, we're proud of it and we're excited that of the potential that it has, you know, and, and my goal from now here is to, to get that prospective study going and I've been working hard to try and, and get something organized. And I hope that in the, the next few years, it will be underway so that we can finally prove that uh, because, you know, the problem with most of these studies is there, the problem with all of these studies uh, that have been published on children and refractive surgery is that they all have small numbers. Only my study and one other by Otrada have a control group and his was a prospective control group um, uh, which is a little better than mine because he, you know, had it was prospective at the same time. But that, you know, they, those are still small studies of, you know, less than 30 people, or, you know, less than 20 patients, you know, that sort of small numbers. And so, you really can't get to the levels of saying that this is safe and efficacious, and you know, because it, you know, the confidence intervals are too wide on any of these studies. So we need to get a large study um, organized. Which would be a multi-center study, and to to sh to really um, answer the question of whether or not this uh, procedure uh, is safe and effective in children for this indication and others. Um, I think it has uh, great applicability to children that have uh, amyotropic amblyopia and with neurologic problems, and that would be premature infants with high myopia. That's the most common group we see nowadays or anything, Down syndrome with high myopia and they just refuse to wear their glasses. These children you know, are severely debilitated and that they have tactile phobias. They don't like anything on their face, so they refuse to wear the glasses despite the fact that it helps them see. And so they go through life really missing out on, on the world and um, this, you know, this procedure works very well for it. And we've done a few kids like this that have basically turned on from being wheelchair-bound and, and non-mobile to walking and interacting and smiling to their, you know, with their families. And so you know, I think that it, it has great potential, and it's, you know, it's one of the most exciting things in, in pediatric ophthalmology that has come around, I think, in... I don't know, 50 years, 60 years. I mean, it's it's so it's it's something that I'm I'm really excited about because pediatric ophthalmology doesn't have all the the bells and whistles of all the other subspecialties in ophthalmology, you know. <laughs> so it's it's really exciting, and I'm 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 excited that there's something new in amblyopia that to offer that you know Hippocrates didn't already do. You know, I mean, he was patching patients <laughs> back in 2,000 years ago. You know, so. Um, so it's it's something exciting, and hopefully we'll be able to prevent even um, if we finally get to the point where we know, well, you know, if you're bound to fail traditional therapy, if you have 
five or six diopters anisometropia, don't even bother with traditional therapy. Let's do PRK first or whatever effective surgery we decide that is the best and, and avoid even getting amblyopia. That would be the greatest thing, you know, and then you don't even have to worry about it. It's kind of like that two-and-a-half-year-old child. I mean, he doesn't have amblyopia really. I mean, he's, you know, he's 20, 30 in that eye, you know, and just by doing the PRK, that's what we did with him. So, you know, that's what I, I hope to achieve in the, you know, in the, in the next, you know, 10 to 15 years. Evelyn, thank you very much. Thanks. Well, it was nice talking to you. Evelyn Pacey is Associate Professor of Ophthalmology and Pediatrics at the Baylor College of Medicine and the Texas Children's Hospital. Her paper, Long-Term Outcomes of Photorefractive Keratectomy for Anisometropic Amblyopia in Children, is in press and will appear in the February 2006 issue of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Pacey or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we have discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.